Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Brown Harris Stevens, but Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate. The show is a weekly program celebrating New York. We look at its history, its texture, and its vibe, and occasionally its architecture. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians, and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we bring an individual New York neighborhood to life for you. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On other shows, like this evening's, we celebrate an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Prior episodes, you've heard us cover topics as illuminating as American presidents who were from New York or who lived in New York. We've looked at the history of women activists and the suffrage movement. We've looked at the history of the LGBT rights movement in the city. We've explored bicycles and cycling, punk and opera, our public library systems, our libraries, the subway, the trains, public buildings, and even bridges, just to name a few. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google, as well as other services. Tonight's one of those special programs. We're going to be looking at a period of architecture in New York that is all around us, thank goodness. It is modernism. And I'm very lucky tonight to have a stalwart and an expert who's going to be on for the whole show. He's also the program special consultant, and I'm referring to none other than the famous David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Uh, <laughs> Got to read a little bit of David's bio. He's a lifelong architectural enthusiast and provides creative sales enhancing services for the national real estate community. David's the founder and CEO of a company called Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. David also produces events. Uh, one of them is a room at the top. It's, I'm sorry, called Room at the Top. It's co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York. It's the only ongoing networking and appreciation series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings, including some of its modernist buildings. David has a blog. Uh, his latest one is called Every Building on Fifth. that documents every single building on Fifth Avenue from Washington Square right up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River, right in Harlem. David's writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust Preservation Magazine. David, I don't know else how to say a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. It's always great to have you. Thanks a lot, Jeff. It's always great to be here. Uh, <laughs> in two places, as it were. <laughs> it's right. I'm here, you're there, and the station owner uh, and engineer Sam is in his place. Eventually, we'll go back to uh, being in studio. I can't wait for that day. Um, David, as you're a regular, some of our listeners uh, know when you or your background, but we have a growing number of listeners and some don't. And tonight's uh, topic is on architecture. How did you get interested in architectural history and in New York's architectural history in particular? Well, um, uh, when I was small, my siblings and I were actually the first employees of the uh, Parks Department out on Long Island. And we used to do something called the Old Bethpage Fair, the Old Bethpage Village Restoration out on Long Island, where we would dress in period clothing and demonstrate the toys of that, uh, that era. Now, Old Bethpage Village Restoration, for those unfamiliar with it, it's a little bit like a mini colonial Williamsburg. It's a village that um, goes from the Dutch colonial period to around the 1850s, 1860s period, so around the period of the American Civil War. 
And it is made up of these historic buildings that were moved there. And when we were working there, sometimes we would have the chance to stay overnight in one of the buildings that sort of was built out as office space. And I just sort of fell in love with the idea of these old structures, really being able to inhabit them and inhabit them kind of in the clothing of the period, too. It was very unique. Uh, and from there, my, my mother was a, a painter and artist. She always was very visually oriented. So she kind of made it sort of part of her task in educating us to sort of see cities and buildings as, as physical things. And I just grew more and more interested in that sort of side of things and went on to a major in art history and uh, English, double major at Vassar, which is also, I know, your alma mater. And uh, went from there into the art world for about 17 years, but always kept up a interest in writing on architecture as a subject. So, uh, And thank goodness you have done that, because if you hadn't, you wouldn't be the expert that we are relying on tonight to take us through modernism. <laughs> um, before we get to uh, the actual fun part, the buildings, I want to talk about modernism uh, as, a, as a period in general. Um, most periods of art and architecture are given names, sometimes during a period and sometimes after it. Um, was modernism called modernism as it was going on, as it started? And, and what is modernism, actually? Let's start with that. What is modernism? Modernism can be thought of as a rejection of the revival style. And the reason why it was called modernism is because it was a branch of architecture that attempted simply to represent through materiality the new technological era. Uh, prior to the rise of modernism as sort of what we now think of as the basic architecture of our time, uh, Almost all architecture was a revival. It was Greek revival, it was Gothic revival, it was Romantic revival, it was Mediterranean revival, Tudor revival, this revival, that revival, the other thing. And uh, it was just a way that, you know, architects became almost archaeologists and going back and looking at some of the great older buildings of civilizations and then recreating from here, recreating from there and stitching it all together in order to house what were, you know, modern buildings for their times. Um, there, we have to be sort of aware of the fact that modernism has a very long history in architecture and that a lot of it started here in the United States. Modernism is not a European import, although a lot of people seem to think that it is. Uh, it started with people like Lewis Henry Sullivan and James uh, John Wellborn Root out in Chicago. That's where I would say that the, the true anticipants of American modernism come from, architects such as Green and Green in Pasadena, Irving Gill, who worked in Los Angeles and in San Diego, and Frank Lloyd Wright, of course, who was probably the greatest known um, American architect throughout the world, starting in the 1880s, 1890s period in the suburbs of Chicago and in and around the Midwest, New York State and California. So um, modernism is simply an architecture that is not based on a precedent. It responds to site, it responds to climate, um, it follows certain innovative forms of technology uh, in terms of construction. That's particularly the use of glass, steel, and reinforced concrete. Uh, the idea that form should follow function is from Lewis Sullivan, as I said, an American architect, 1880s, 1890s. He says form forever follows function. And what he meant is that the, the, the shape of a building should be expressive of what it is for and not a symbolic representation of something else. Lewis Mumford, the American architectural critic, once cautioned against the excesses of the Beaux-Arts, although we love those buildings too, buildings such as Grand Central. He said, in Sullivan and Wright, we have architecture. In the confections of the Beaux-Arts, we have literature. We have historical documentation. 
So there's an idea that modernism also is somewhat, and this, this, is, this is a very interesting idea. It's, it's kind of anti-narrative. It's about what's going on now. It's not about what went on before, and it's not about mm. what's going on in the future. It's about actually the present. And for that reason, I think a lot of the, the greatest modernist buildings are very appealing once you're in them, once you're experiencing them. But they can sometimes be alienating if they're seen in photographs, and they don't necessarily lend themselves to the kind of romanticization that, say, an old Victorian mansion does or a Greek revival plantation down south. Mm. Uh, you'll also note that those houses, the Victorians and the Greek revivals, have very negative cultural connotations for some people, whereas modernism is an attempt to basically represent people at a kind of a sort of face-to-face level. It's sort of, it, it accepts audiences for who they are at that point. So there's a lot going on in that in that term. And I, I often think modernism is maybe a little bit of a a wrong term to use for these buildings, but I'm not quite sure what I would substitute for mm. it. So yeah, uh, modernism kind of comes out of all of that. Well, speaking of buildings accepting people for who they are, that's that's uh, really the story of modern New York right now. Um, was New York a pioneer? I mean, we, you talked about Sullivan in Chicago in the 1880s and 90s. Was New York a pretty much a pioneer in modernist architecture, or had it really taken hold substantially in other places before so many modernist buildings were, were built here in the city? Uh, I think New York is at the forefront of modernism for much of its built existence and for reasons that don't have anything to do with things that people associate with modernism. New York wasn't necessarily utopian, but it was a city that saw itself as quote-unquote democratic. It was a city that was supposed to be you know, built for everyone. This wasn't supposed to be a city of the, the graceful ovals and ellipses of London squares. That's why we don't have any ovals. That's why we don't have any, any round features in a lot of New York City, because those were actually associated with the aristocracy. So there's sort of like the grid is the grid. Everybody gets the same chance to build on a certain amount of land. Um, the skyscraper is an early form of modernism, whether it's dressed up as Gothic or classical or whatever have you, because it's about technology. It's about the steel skeleton, about elevators, it's about the setbacks. So there's a lot of zoning initiatives and a lot of engineering initiatives going on in New York that really are at the height of what then becomes modernism, but aren't necessarily expressed stylistically as modernism, mm. if that makes sense. So yeah, Absolutely. I think New York... New York has always been sort of ahead of uh, many of the great European cities, because even though, you know, they went in for a little Bauhaus there and a little, you know, a little glass building here and always this over here, you know, there were some great social building projects that happened in the, in the 20s, 30s and 40s period, for example, or post World War II, I should say, particularly. But, um, you know, you don't think of Paris as a modern looking city. You think of New York as a modern looking city. And Mm. I think, the, the very bones of New York support modernism. It works. Although, it, it wouldn't work as well. And that, that's why I, when I look at London's modernism, I'm always like, this is incoherent because it, the, grid, the, the the street plan of London is something that's organic and medieval. It's not, it's cloistered. It's not something that's planned out. So there's no rationality. So you can't really impose a rational form on it the way you can on New York. New York just makes sense for modernism. And actually, you bring up an interesting point because uh, downtown Manhattan is sort of reminiscent Wall Street, a little bit of of London because streets sort of just cropped up. But um, the great modernist buildings, uh, structures that we're going to discuss, I don't think any of them are in downtown. And maybe there's a reason for that. Um, Yes. 
And that brings us to my favorite part, which is going to be my favorite part of this discussion, uh, which are the buildings, and I'm sure yours as well. Uh, we're going to be talking about specific buildings and structures. I want to start off with a foreign-inspired building um, that was yes. built in New York, uh, not Manhattan, actually, before the Second World War. Uh, and this was a European-inspired building right here in the city, and that was for the World Series of 1939. Do you want to talk about that? Yes, the Finnish Pavilion by Oliver Alto is for the New York World's Fair, uh, 1939. It's not extant in its original form, uh, but the competition was in 1937, and the pavilion itself was built by Alto, who was one of Finland's great modernist architects, uh, from 1938 to 1939. It was 52 feet high and consisted of four stories, and there was an interior that was really quite remarkable, a kind of a wavy interior that almost suggests a form of timber corduroy, if you will. And they were covered with photographs that kind of were woven into these curves. The uppermost series of pictures showed the country of Finland, the next, the people of Finland, the third, somewhat lower down, was the industry of Finland, people at work, and finally, the bottom series depicted the results of the above three factors, which were the sort of new products and technologies that were being developed in Finland as part of, you know, Finnish uh, modern culture. So the interior finish was of wood uh, with different profiles. So it was formed almost like a stepped ziggurat inverted, uh, almost like the form of the Whitney Museum of American Art, if you can sort of picture that. It telescoped outwards as it, as it got taller in the room. And it was formed to create a kind of a harmonic rhythm of materials and photographic presentations. Um, the materials used in the construction of the wall surfaces were treated as objects in an exhibition as opposed to flat forms on a space. So they kind of had an almost 3D sensibility, if you really think about it. A photograph that's curving around you and kind of hovering above you becomes something quite new and quite kind of in interesting. It, it, it engages with the actual space itself in a way that a flat photograph obviously wouldn't. Mm -hmm. uh, the roof, too, was used as an exhibit area. Uh, there were airplane propellers of pressed wood, a finished specialty that churned the air to kind of uh, sort of like a, uh, a sort of a atmospheric fan kind of going on and then summer nights uh, as both a display and a source of ventilation. So it had, it had a certain amount of uh, playful wit to it, almost a steampunk sensibility. Was there a functionality that the design was meant to intone or represent? I mean, you, the things you talk about, it almost seems like there were, there were purposes behind everything and not, just and not just ornamentation. Yes. Alto himself wrote about the pavilion, and I'm quoting here from the architect, Quote, an exhibition should be what in the early days it used to be, a general store in which all possible objects are grouped together in a dense display, whether it be fish, cloth, or cheese. Therefore, in this pavilion, I have attempted to provide the densest possible concentration of display, a space filled with wares next to and above and beneath each other, agricultural and industrial products often just a few inches apart. It was no easy work composing these individual elements into one symphony. And, you know, mm. we may think of, of this approach as being perhaps a little bit materialistic and sort of like, oh, here's a bunch of products. But we also have to think we're in the middle of a, a worldwide global depression. So the idea that there was technology that was kind of easing things, that there were new forms of producing things that could, you know, serve the population in terms of comfort and health. Those were very important things for an audience in 1939, both in New York City and around the world. So uh, Alto's 
you know, sort of idea of creating it as sort of just a mercantile display of things that could be had, I think, was a, an important kind of progressive message for that time period. Mm. Well, great. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this special episode. I think it's 121 uh, about modernism in New York. We'll be back in a moment. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 5, 8 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. And you're back to Rediscovering New York. And our engineer pointed out that I made a mistake about something. It's episode 122, not 121. Uh, it's good to be here for on the 122nd time. My guest on this program about modernism in New York is the famous David Griffin of Landmark Branding. David, we're going to talk about Landmark Branding after the next break. But uh, let's go back to the buildings. Uh, we talked about the Finnish Pavilion and the World's Fair uh, in Queens in 1939. Let's go to another famous building in New York that was designed before the war, the Museum of Modern Art. Yes. So the Museum of Modern Art is designed in 1939. That's when it opens. So it opens actually the year of the World's Fair by Edward Durrell Stone with the assistance of the trustee Philip Godwin. And uh, in May of 1939, after a decade of functioning out of rental spaces, from its first exhibition in an office building on Fifth Avenue in a mansion leased by the Rockefeller family, uh, the Museum of Modern Art moved into a custom-built home on West 53rd Street, which is where we know it today. This flagship was designed in collaboration between Godwin, who was a museum trustee, and Edward Durrell Stone. Uh, the garden was designed by MoMA's architecture curator, John McAndrew, and MoMA's director, Alfred H. Barr, Jr., and it's often thought to be one of the 
most beautiful small-scale environments in New York City. It has, of course, been extensively renovated with the massive addition to the museum space to the west of the original building. Um, the involvement of Stone came about as the director of the museum pushed for the addition of an architect with a distinctly modern approach, using new materials and minimal ornamentation to counterbalance Godwin's predilection for more traditional bow art styles. Godwin was interested in modern art, but he wasn't necessarily that taken with what he thought of as modern architecture. We also have to remember that the makeup of West 53rd Street when MoMA was built was entirely Beaux Arts. It was some of the most lavish townhouses built to the west of New York City. Unfortunately, none of those remain, but if you look at the, um, obviously, St. Thomas's Church at the corner of 53rd Street, uh, West 53rd Street and Fifth Avenue gives you some idea of the, the ornamentation level. Um, so Bard actually hoped to bring in a prominent European modern architect, uh, particularly Mies van der Rohe, and resigned from the building committee after Stone was selected without his final approval. However, I do think Stone produced one of the great buildings of his career. I, I also think Stone in general is a kind of a, a misrepresented and in some ways a, a unfairly maligned architect. I think that he's a lot better than people were willing to give him credit for. And I think that the early, his early buildings are actually shockingly good. Uh, and they really pick up on the tenets of certain types of European modernism, but translate them quite effortlessly into an American vernacular, if you will. They involve things that are immediately recognizable as American. And MoMA, with its sort of strange porthole cornices, and it's, it's kind of very bright, tight, kind of very lucid elucidation of the grid, is very much a building that would be as home in Chicago, say, or a Midwestern city of modernism as it would anywhere else. It's a, or on a college campus. <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, I think, I think MoMA is one of the few buildings that really works as a neighbor. You know, it doesn't demand that there's a space around it. It was always a facade, and it always worked well within even the context of those early Beaux-Arts townhouses. So I, I encourage the reader, our listeners, to actually go and Google old historic images of that building so you can see how it kind of rested in its site. It's a very interesting um, sort of look for it. You can see how, how new it must have appeared during the time. Hmm. Well, let's take a little detour. Um, we don't usually think of public buildings, especially public housing, as being exemplary in new architectural styles, but we do have one in New York, don't we? We actually have several, and we could almost do an entire show on public housing and its design and architecture. I think that would actually be very interesting. But the one that I find uh, most interesting of all is the Williamsburg houses. And these are out in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Uh, they're called the Ten Ike Houses. And they're a public housing complex built and operated by the New York City Housing Authority in the Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn, as I said, consisting of 20 buildings. Uh, the Williamsburg houses actually predate both the pavilion by Alto at the World's Fair and the Museum of Modern Art. This is one instance where public architecture was more of a at the forefront of modernism 
than was, say, you know, art and entertainment, et cetera, and so forth. So it's and we can uh, partly thank the uh, uh, radical socialists of the New Deal for coming up with the resources and yes. the vision to give us some of this great architecture that we have. Absolutely. Obviously, I'm so, joking. I don't think FDR was a radical socialist. But, uh. <laughs> uh, the Williamsburg House were built in 1936 through 1938 under the auspice of the Housing Division of the Public Works Administration, which was started, of course, by FDR's administration. Um, the chief architect of the project was Richmond Shreve. Now, Richmond Shreve is not a name that kind of trips lightly off the tongue or comes immediately to the ear, but he is one of the three architects responsible for a building that happened not much earlier, but which is far more famous, the Empire State Building. He was the architect, architectural partner of Shreve, um, Harmon, and Lamb that created that structure in 1930 through 1931. Um, the design team of nine other architects was led by a Swiss American modernist. So this is this is a, a sort of a moment where American modernism and European modernism meet and work together. And that was William Lescaz, who was based in Philadelphia, who created the PSFS building, which is a really a kind of a titanic structure of early international style in Philadelphia. The construction contract was awarded to Starrett Brothers, who were also modernists of their own sort of sort. The Starrett brothers um, were the successor firm of Van Starrett, who had created new forms of department store architecture and skyscraper architecture in the 1890s and 1900s period. Um, the designs called for the inclusion of modern art commissioned through the Federal Arts Project, and there were numerous, literally dozens, of distinguished artists who were approached to be part of this project. And unfortunately, almost none of the work that they planned for it either was installed or if it was installed, it survives. So I think there are two murals left that have been uncovered and restored on site. And any other artwork has been shipped off to various museums uh, or was never actually commissioned and completed. But if, if, the, if the buildings had risen to plan, this would be almost as important as MoMA itself to experience the American modernist art of that period. Yes. Uh, yes. It was really a very ambitious project. Um, the New York City Council of Politicians, Rosie Mendez, grew up in the development. And the Williamsburg Houses have been designated a New York City landmark in 2003 and were added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2021. So just very recently. Um, it's a fascinating complex of buildings. Every time I've gone past it, because I, I used to live in Williamsburg, I always wondered, gosh, that looks kind of interesting. It's sort of Art Deco, but it's not quite Art Deco. Look at all the little lawns and gardens and things. It could definitely stand some upkeep. The buildings, unfortunately, haven't been you know, maintained the way that they should be. But they're also, they're very handsome. And I think the people who live there, you realize what a, a kind of a break it was from the tenement architecture and the kind of slum architecture that they were replacing. Mm. Um, very, very much, I think, a, a major major work of modernism in American history. Well, the 10 Ike houses, I believe, were New York City's uh, second public housing project. The first, which were the first houses in the East Village between 1st and 2nd Avenue and 2nd and 3rd Street, they actually have a very, very different look about them. They echo, although they're not tenements, they, they echo uh, more of that look of uh, houses on the blocks in the East Village. So uh, something substantial happened in a year or two that had the city go uh, decide that it was going to build something that's that that really was was almost revolutionary in terms of its design. Yes. Um, let's move to a building now. The firm of which uh, that designed it might surprise people because the many apartment buildings built by its namesake were built almost in a different architectural area, even though they were only a couple of decades before this this important building went up. 
Yes, the Look Building. This is at 488 Madison Avenue. Uh, it is just one block north on Madison Avenue of the rear of St. Patrick's Cathedral, uh, potentially one of the greatest Gothic revival buildings in New York City. Uh, it's a 25-story office building in Midtown Manhattan. Um, it's between 51st and 52nd Streets on the western side. Uh, and it was designed by Emery Roth and Sons. Now, most people who know of Emery Roth and Sons, or Emery Roth actually, are conversant with him because of the magnificent apartment houses that he designed throughout the upper neighborhoods of New York City, and occasionally in places like Park Slope in Brooklyn. Um, huge sort of Spanish Baroque and Art Deco fantasy architecture. Uh, things like the San Remo, for example, or the Majestic Apartments, or the Century Building. Um, buildings that kind of had this weightless verticality to them. I think that you could you could definitely count something like the Century, for example, as uh, being indicative of a kind of American modernism, although we tend to slot it into Art Deco. But with the look building, the the form of the structure really takes over. The detailing become the details become the detailing, if it will. And it is really a remarkable uh, sort of symphony of white brick. It's got a wonderful series of setbacks that create a cascading kind of waterfall effect that was copied and imitated quite uh, a number of times, uh, particularly in the West Streets, west of Fifth Avenue. You'll see smaller buildings that have this kind of cascading waterfall look that were built in the early 1950s or so, and that kind of take their cues from the, the treatment at the Look Building. Mm. So... Yes. Um, now, I'm just uh, uh, there's so much for us to cover uh, that I want to make sure that we get to uh, the main buildings that you picked out. Um, I'd like to move before we take a break to one of New York's most famous buildings, David, and one that's known almost as well as any in New York. And that's the United Nations and specifically the Secretariat Building on the U.N. sprawling east side campus. Want to yes. talk about that for, for a minute? Absolutely. So this building was uh, designed by the Brazilian art architect Oscar Niemeyer and the Swiss-French architect Le Corbusier. Wallace Harrison was the American sort of contact and architect and built by the architectural firm of Harrison and Abramovitz. And that's a lot of cooks stirring in a pot. Uh, <laughs> it goes up in 1950. And it's not really the first true curtain wall building because it does have a masonry sort of bookends on either side. But it is the first instance of an all-glass wall, one facing the East River, one facing 42nd Street Midtown. And I really think it's remarkable. And it's one of those buildings that I think really shocked people and stirred them and kind of excited them when they first saw it. And now there's been so many buildings that have sort of, you know, ridden in on its coattails. It's, hard, it's kind of hard to see uh, for what it must have been like back in the, you know, the very early 1950s. And the idea that it offers a window onto New York and a window onto the world itself, I think is in fact quite symbolic and indicative of the kind of program of the United Nations, which was to create architecture that was neutral. So it's architecture that's not really trying to make a lot of bells and whistles happen. It's sort of a drawing back of something. And I think there's something very subdued and something very serene about uh, the United Nations as, as a whole. And I almost feel like, you know, every time I see the Secretariat, I think of it as like a great sail on a ship, sort of just kind of puffed out and just gliding along over the world's oceans. So it, yes. it has a very, a very progressive very harmonic sensibility to it that's that's not about one thing or the other. We can thank one of New York's great philanthropic families, the Rockefellers, for donating the land on which the United Nations was built. 
Um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with David Griffin of Landmark Branding on modernism and modernist architecture in New York. We'll be back in a moment. Do you feel uninformed about menopause and how it impacts on your life? Hi, I'm Pat Duckworth, women's health strategist and host of the Hot Women Rock radio show, empowering women leaders at menopause. Join me every Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. UK Time on talkradio.nyc for interviews with inspirational women who will share their top tips to rock your world. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector, coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. You're back to Rediscovering New York. Support for the program comes from our sponsors. Christopher Pappas, mortgage specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please give Chris a call at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 495-0317. You can like the show on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on all three are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we continue our fascinating conversation with David, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Our guest for the entirety of this show on modernism is David Griffin of Landmark Branding. 
Uh, David, do you want to tell us a little, little bit about Landmark Branding and the work that you do for, for business and architects? Sure thing, Jeff. So I founded the company back in 2013. And since then, I have provided support, marketing support for real estate brokers, such as yourself, but also developers, designers, and architects. I do everything from web text, bios, uh, corporate histories, individual listings. I write articles for magazines such as Brownstoner and Real Estate Weekly. Uh, and I have a blog, Every Building on Fifth, which is a history of every single building on Fifth Avenue, as you mentioned, from Washington Square Park up to the Great Armory at Harlem at 145th Street. So it's about 500 buildings all told. It's a fascinating kind of look, I think, at New York's history in terms of building by building development. Uh, I, you mentioned uh, the Room at the Top series of Jennifer Wallace. Um, Jennifer and I are definitely hoping to get that back up and running. It's a wonderful kind of way to experience buildings in New York City. Um, I do things like VIP tours, for example. I design special events. And I've been doing a series of illustrated talks at the New York Adventure Club on global architecture and on certain trends that help build and create the architectural culture that we know around the world today. Um, so I can be reached at dgriffin at landmarkbranding.com. And my website is www.landmarkbranding.com. The blog is linked through the, the website for people who are curious about that. And I'm very happy to answer any questions that people may have uh, having listened to the show. And you also have graciously been on some of my virtual content during the pandemic on Rediscovering New York, uh, which I am grateful for. Um, you know, we're talking about modernism and uh, probably what exemplifies it, as we've talked about, is a function over form. So uh, the next group of buildings actually are really talk about function and not form and nothing that you might think of as uh, having a lot of form. Uh, one is a soap company that built its headquarters in New York and a consumer package goods company right on Park Avenue. Let's talk about Lever House. Yes. So Lever House is, of course, by Skidmore, Owings and Merrill, Gordon Bunshaft. It's built during the same time as the United Nations, 1950, 1952. And it is probably a more pure version of what we consider the curtain wall in that it is the first building in New York City to be entirely glass walled. In other words, it's entirely transparent on every side. Uh, and in fact, I would say, um, uh, Jeff, that Lever House is actually extremely formalistic in a way and that it takes a certain slab and it balances it over a pavilion of sorts and then creates a hollow forecourt for the pavilion with a kind of a garden area on top and a place for sculpture on the bottom. So there's actually quite a bit going on with Lever House. Uh, the idea also is that it's sort of creating a certain setback so that although the pavilion fills the block, the tower that rises above it is not something that is set facing the road. It's actually set facing kind of the, the horizontal, if you will. And it, so people in Lieber House really have fantastic views in and out of it. And there's a lot of natural light that comes down into that roof garden. So it's actually a very delicate kind of presence on Park Avenue. It's something that's not meant to be overwhelming or monumental in a particular way. So yeah, it's, it's an idea of intersecting masses, which I think is very dynamic. Um, within on, only a decade of its construction, the initial enthusiasm for uh, Lieber House gave way to kind of a recognition of how important this was in American architecture. This was the first all glass office building and whatever we think of the ones that began to march up certain city avenues down the other side, uh, this one was really a very delicately handled entrant 
1982, the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission designated the Lever House an official landmark, which was actually quite remarkable considering the fact that, you know, there wasn't the affection for modernism of that time period that there is now. You know, I think, you know, 40 years later, a lot more people are, are interested in things like Lever House. One thing I love about Lever House is you actually can walk into the sculpture garden from the street. You know, the, uh, yes. it, it's, it's, and, you know, one of the great things about, about what we're talking about today is almost every single building that we're talking about is still there and you can go and see it and experience yes. it. And, you know, that's, uh, uh, you know, I'm a little bit older than you. I was born in 1960 and I, my mother first started taking me around town in the sixties and it was, a, it was a striking environment to, to grow up and to see all this, all this modern architecture, just all this, these clean surfaces and all this glass. Well, um, talking about functionality, uh, let's move from soap to booze <laughs> right across <laughs> the street. In fact, across park Avenue. And I'm referring to the famous Seagram building. Yes, so this is the only work of architecture in New York City by Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, who was a German-born architect who later took American citizenship. He fled Germany because of the Nazis. He moves to Chicago, and he becomes the kind of doyen, along with Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill, also based in that city, of a new form of architecture that is called the Second Chicago School and gels into something that is called the international style. And... The second Chicago school takes the first Chicago school, which is Lewis Henry Sullivan, John Walborn Root, Daniel H. Burnham, people of that caliber, people who are creating the very first skyscrapers. It takes their rationality. It takes their proportions. It takes their materials. It shakes all the residual ornament off, and it continues. So it's sort of like a denuding of the first Chicago school. Uh, so in this case, what makes this building kind of remarkable is the fact that it is made of bronze. Uh, that's an incredibly expensive material for a skyscraper of this sort. And the glasses that you see, we're used to thinking about tinted glass, that is stained glass. And it's a particular type wow. of amber yellow that is created for the Seagram building. Um, I once had a um, architectural professor at Vassar. We, we took a tour of buildings on Park Avenue with him. And he pointed out that if you really go up to the columns of the Seagram building, now they may have been refinished since we did this, but they had almost kind of a bloom to them. There was almost sort of a, you know, as, as, as the bronze patinates, it almost looked like tiny little mosses were growing over the surfaces of the building. So there's sort of a, a very, a very, very delicate way to look at this building up close. It's a building that actually rewards close examination. And I think a lot of people might pass by and say, oh, another glass box, whatever. Hmm. It's not that at all. Uh, it also, it, it, it kind of does something very interesting. It installs a public pavilion in front of itself, so it doesn't have to rise in setbacks. Um, for those unfamiliar with the setback law of 1916, uh, as buildings grew higher, people were becoming concerned about things like air quality and light quality. So they made a law which said that the building had to be set back uh, the higher it got, the more setbacks it had to have. It could only fulfill a certain uh, proportion of its building envelope. If you and wanted to go up high, you could, you, go you, up could, high. you could cap it lower and not have setbacks. So what Lever House and the Seagram building do is they say, all right, we're going to go up high. We're not going to set back the actual structure. 
but we're going to push the structure back and install public spaces in front of it. That will protect the light and air. It'll give more space for the city. And we can go up higher and we don't have to do that sort of inverted boxy thing that the Empire State Building, for example, does. So the Seagram Building is entirely a slab, but it's facing this very beautifully designed pavilion of travertine and green marble with fountains and staircases, opportunities for people to kind of sit or stay. Uh, and this was kind of the case throughout the 1960s, and it really wasn't until the 1970s that that just was overridden. It's like, okay, you want a tall building? Put it up a tall building. No public facilities necessary. Um, and I think we've been the poor for it, uh, to be perfectly frank. Well, let's move to the world of banking and a very striking building, also because part of its function is right in its front window. Yes, 10 feet away from Fifth Avenue, one of the largest safes in New York City. The Manufacturers Trust Company building at 510 Fifth Avenue. It is a block north of uh, the New York Public Library in Bryant Park. It's on the west side of Fifth Avenue on West 53rd Street. And it's a very small little kind of jewel box of a building. This is not a skyscraper. It's not a monumental building. It's an anti-monumental building in a way. Uh, also designed by Skidmore, Owings & Merrill with Gordon Bunshaft serving as the chief designer. Uh, very important work uh, by this firm, uh, designed in 1954. It's only five stories tall. Now, that is unheard of for new construction in midtown Manhattan. Try to find me the five-story tall building that anybody's building in New York these days, anywhere near midtown. It's just not going to happen. Uh, it features clear glass window walls, thin polished aluminum mullions, dark gray facings. In some ways, it's, it's kind of a, a riff on the aesthetic founded at Lever House. And the transparency and articulation of the skeletal structure of the building led the Architectural Forum to praise it as, quote, the first big building truly to fulfill architects' immaculate drafting board idea of glass as an invisible material. So in some ways, this is a building that kind of melts away. It's almost a pavilion. You can imagine it in a kind of a, a garden sensibility. Uh, it has a tremendous interior. It's actually one of the best modernist interiors in New York that is mostly intact, except for changes in signage. Um, there are alterations to the West 43rd Street entrances. Uh, but it has a tremendously beautiful screen by the Chicago-based artist Harry Bertoia. I love Bertoia. I am a tremendous Bertoia fan. And this screen, which is kind of a, a very whimsical, very delicate, kind of almost like a hollyhock pattern, a field of wheat, something that you could definitely see Frank Lloyd Wright enjoying. Mm. And Frank Lloyd Wright, of course, is also a Chicago architect, um, is uh, installed on the upper floors. And on the lower floor is that massive safe, um, which they decided we're going to put it in the window. We're not going to hide it away. This is what a bank is for. So it kind of goes against the Greek temple nobility of those old Beaux-Arts banks, which I also happen to really, really like, uh, but says, no, finance is transparent. Our transactions are open to the public. People can see what we're doing, where everything is above board, everything is stable. We live in a very safe environment. We're not afraid of cops and robbers and all that sort of mm. stuff. No one's going to come breaking in here. We don't, we're so... We are so committed to the idea of American culture as being at its apex. We're going to hide your money in a glass box. <laughs> I mean, just think about what a revolutionary message that is. Yes, yes. So, yeah. And that's also very emblematic of the, of the message and image of New York beginning in the 1960s. Um, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin of Landmark Branding about modernism in New York architecture. We'll be back in a moment. 
passionate about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. And you're back to Rediscovering New York in episode 122. Our program tonight is about modernism in New York architecture. My guest is the great David Griffin of Landmark Branding. And, you know, David, unfortunately, like so many other great topics we talk right. about, there's so much to talk about. We're running short on time. So I want to focus uh, on three buildings of the rest that we have on the list that I think are, are fantastic. Two of them are museums. Um, one of them is the Guggenheim uh, on Fifth Avenue. And speaking of uh, America's greatest architect, Frank Lloyd Wright. Yes. So Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, as you say, one of the greatest architects of all time, um, one who actually had no formal architectural training in terms of going to an architectural school. He was taught his craft through the offices of Louis Sullivan, who actually was a student of the Academy of Arts in Paris back in the uh, 19th century. Um, Wright didn't really call himself a modernist architect. He was very much sui generis. Uh, yeah, he didn't like labels. I don't, he just, you know, he, yeah. was, he, he was him. He was himself. He, uh, he did like labels. He liked the label that read Frank Lloyd Wright. <laughs> that was the label that he really liked. So in some ways, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright is the first kind of celebrity architecture architect in America. And I feel he threw himself into his craft for various reasons. I, he's a fascinating personality. And I think his work is, you know, stupendous. Uh, the best of it is just 
it's never been quite matched. Um, the Guggenheim Museum is interesting because it represents a kind of a compromise between Wright's ideals and those of his clients, and in this case, um, the great philanthropist Solomon R. Guggenheim, and Mr. Guggenheim's curator, Hilla Ribe, who was from Europe and who had a very distinctive sensibility. And these three very, very powerful personalities often were at odds with one another about the development of the Guggenheim. Um, June 1943, Wright receives a letter from Hilla, uh, who was Guggenheim's art advisor before she was the curator, asking him to design a new building to house the collection uh, that Guggenheim was building of what was called non-objective art. In other words, we now would call it abstract art. But back then, it was sort of something where they're like, well, we don't know what to call it. And, and a lot of this work was things like, for example, Kandinsky, uh, Paul Klee. Uh, Mondrian, our artists that I think most Americans are familiar with. And, you know, their art was meant to represent sort of states of mental consciousness and ways of perceiving reality. Um, some of Kandinsky's work could be tied into certain metaphysical theories of consciousness and of the development of the human spirit. So the one requirement that Guggenheim had of right was that the building should be unlike any other museum in the world. He's like, I'm building an art collection like none other. I want a building like none other. Um, Wright wasn't really happy with Guggenheim's choice of New York City as the location. He said in a letter, you know, I can think of a dozen places that would be better. He wasn't fond of New York, but he proceeded with his wishes. He settled on the present site on Fifth Avenue between 88th and 89th Streets. They actually took down the Guggenheim Museum that was there in order to build, a Guggenheim Mansion rather, that was there in order to build the Guggenheim Museum. And he loved it because of its proximity to Central Park. So he creates this amazing sort of spiral plan, a kind of a hovering plan of circles and spheres uh, in which the guest is taken up to the top of the museum via elevator, very futuristic, very modern. And then you walk down this long continuous ramp viewing the paintings and other works of art until you are at the bottom where the fountain kind of symbolizes the close of this episode of culture. And if you look up, you see that vast rotunda floating above you. And it's sort of like opening up the eye. It was, an, it was, it was sort of, everything was kind of geared as a psychological process, not just a way to look at art. And, you know, they argued back and forth about what the actual shape should be. Should this go here? Should this go there? Wright wanted the Guggenheim to be cuff-faced in marble. He wanted it to be the color, as he said, of a lobster bisque. Obviously, that didn't happen. None of those things happened. Um, so in some ways, this is, this is one of Wright's most famous buildings, but it's also a case where the client really put their foot down and said, no, we're doing it our way, not your way. And I think that gives the Guggenheim Museum kind of a certain tension within Wright's sort of field of works that is, in fact, the key to making it the provocative building that it remains. You go into that mm -hmm. building, it's alive in a way that so many other spaces aren't. Whatever you think of the exterior, whatever you think of the experience of trying to view art in it, no one will ever forget going in there and looking up into that dome. All right. Well, David, we're almost out of time, but we can't talk about modernist architecture in New York without talking about one of my favorite buildings on the program tonight. We're going to take a little trip to an outer borough and specifically along the north, I'm sorry, the southeastern portion of the city that's very close to the wetlands. I'm referring to JFK Airport. There is a monumental 
building right there, Monumental Terminal. You want to talk about the GWA terminal and the minute yeah. and a half we have left? By Ereo Sarin in 1962, Raymond Lowy, the great designer, does some of the interiors. Um, thankfully, it has been restored now as a hotel, so it's a place that people can go and visit. Uh, known as the Trans World Flight Center, GWA Flight Center. Um, built 1962-2001, operated, well, that's where it operated as a terminal, rather. Adaptively repurposed in 2017 as part of the TWA Hotel. Um, it really is an exquisite building. It's a, sort of a revival of a European style. It was called Expressionism, in which the building actually becomes a kind of a formal sculpture. And in some sense, this was the, the, the total, the total um, anti-architecture of Lewis Sullivan. Lewis Sullivan said, form follows function. Saranen says, nah, nah. Symbolism. We need symbolism here. So he creates this kind of swooping, glorious kind of structure that is reminiscent of a bird of seagull, say, about to take flight. Um, it's the only work of architecture I can think of in New York where you think, well, I hope that doesn't dump on my head. Uh, but it is really kind of a kind of a magic. Except the Pan Am building, maybe, but that's uh... <laughs> there for different reasons. Yeah. Um, so it is it really is quite a, a striking building and one that I'm very glad to have. And it's something that really kind of threw a spanner into the works of modernism. No, we're not going to be about rationality. We're not going to be about the grid. We're not going to be about elegance and refinement, the tiny little details you have to seek out. We want big, bold things. We want theatricality. We want a certain grandeur. We want a kind of an intellectual opulence. And I think the TWA terminal, more than any other single building in New York, really, although it is a modern building, it breaks down modernism. All of a sudden, architecture has to start thinking about other things. And, you know, that's led us in, in a direction that I'm not 100% happy with personally um you know the, the the rise of the star architect the rise of the arch architecture is bobble but yeah it's it's where we are and it is due in part to the the really kind of glorious design of the twa terminal and it's gorgeous and i have to say i pleasantly uh flew through that a number of times and it really does intone what the what the structure is supposed to be david we're out of time thank uh, you so much well, um, but we'll have you back we'll have you back well, we've just finished this week's exploration, everyone, on postmodern architecture in New York. My guest has been David Griffin of Landmark Branding. If you have comments or questions about the show, if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook and follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pabis of TD Bank and the law offices of Tom Siaka. One more thing before we sign off, I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer this evening is the great Sam Leibowitz. Our production assistant is Eric Nelson. Our special consultant is David Griffin, our guest tonight of Landmark Branding. Coffee Talk at 8 with Kevin Barbera follows. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Take care. that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness. 
Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Innings. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, and many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. about the conversation around racism? Hi, I'm Reverend Dr. TLC, host of the Dismantle Racism Show, which airs every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Join me and my amazing guests as we discuss ways to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism. That's Thursdays at 11 o'clock a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, live, 8 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 